Hi there, this is Sophie B. Hawkins, and you're listening to Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. I was there on their first visit, and they were staying in a fancy hotel in Denver, And their biggest joy and thrill and excitement was that there was a Coca-Cola machine you didn't have to put any money in. (laughs) (laughs) Don't even have to put any money in. Get as many Coca-Colas as you like. (laughs) So that was their dream scenario. (laughs) No, they never even dreamed it up. It was just, it was so exciting. Today's guest is Grammy Award-winning American singer-songwriter and activist Joan Baez. Her time-eclipsing folk music often champions songs of protest and social justice. Baez began her recording career in 1960, producing a trio of successful LPs in Joan Baez, Joan Baez Volume 2, and Joan Baez in Concert. As a performer, Baez has specialized in interpreting the work of other composers, recording songs by such luminaries as the Allman Brothers, the Beatles, Jackson Brown, Leonard Cohen, Woody Guthrie, the Rolling Stones, Pete Seeger, Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, and Bob Marley, among many others. During her early years, she was one of Bob Dylan's first major collaborators, steadfastly working to popularize his impact upon folk music. As a singer, Baez has enjoyed renown for such songs as Diamond and Rust, along with covers of Phil Ox, There But For Fortune, and the bands The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. She is also celebrated for her recordings of Farewell Angelina, Love Is Just a Four-Letter Word, Forever Young, Here's to You, Joe Hill, Sweet Sir Galahad, and We Shall Overcome. A featured performer at the 1969 Woodstock Festival, Baez performed 14 songs on that vaunted stage. In 2017, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 2023 was the subject of the acclaimed documentary, I Am a Noise. Welcome, Joan Baez. I've just had such a delight watching the documentary. It's an unusual documentary in the sense that it speaks truth to power, right? It, it, in so many ways, it's about empowerment. What, what led you to work with this team and produce this kind of story? Yeah, I've known Karen O'Connor for decades and known her work for decades. Know the other, know Miri um, as well. And I, over the years, have talked about doing a documentary because they're filmmakers 
and got closer and closer to the end of the, my touring life and thought, okay, this is a good time. We'll um, film the last tour, see what that's like for a 79, 80-year-old woman. And, um, and I wanted to leave an honest legacy, uh, which means you got to show the <laughs> wrinkles and warts as well as, you know, show face. And um, so I, you know, we were well into it, and um, I just handed them the key to the storage unit. That storage unit, of course, becomes very, very important, right? It's it's kind of a device. Well, it, it's, um, Karen said, it's a director's dream and or a nightmare. There was so much stuff. There was so much stuff. I had no idea. I'd never spent any time in there. I didn't know my mom had kept everything, everything and pictures. And then I, I knew that I, you know, I remembered I'd made those tapes to them when I was 21 and 22, but I never heard them. And I, did, I forgot about their existence. So there are a lot of things in the film that, uh, that just um, surprised me and were, you know, built the film. The documentary really had me thinking about the idea of what legacy means too, right? I mean, it's not merely um, the musical legacy, which, you know, is is deservedly and well commented on when it comes to you, but also the legacy of being a human in the world, right? Yeah. Uh, I was really struck by your effort to make sure everybody had their truth and their space inside this story. Yeah, I mean, like my son and his really eloquent and forgiving um, answering of questions, no. And my parents get their say. And, you know, I, I couldn't have made the film if my, if my birth family were still alive. So, you know, that was part of the timing of that. Um, and then, you know, there are people like my son who, who dealt with it, I just thought so beautifully. Uh, and, you know, and onward with family and all the stuff that comes up in the film. History is also woven so well into this story, the way you reflect on the March on DC with MLK. Um, I mean, that, that, that got a lump in my throat and, and it sounded like listening to your narration, you did too. Um, oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, well, of course, when King would speak, I would weep. He used to joke about it. He used to talk about it. He loved, loved him as Joan Baez in the front row because every time I say nonviolent, she bursts into tears, <laughs> which was true. <laughs> he was so moving. Yeah. That very hot day was, um, hugely emotional i'm sure for everybody who was there and i think it says in the film that that made it more clear where my place was and where i felt at home and what i could do with my voice mm. it uh it's so moving and of course one can't help think about you know your lifetime of activism on so many fronts so many important fronts and watching watching martin luther king and all the promise and you know, the fervor of of reliving those moments makes me wonder where we are today, right? Um, I, I remember in my, my own younger days watching video from that time and thinking, wow, we, we're, we've almost licked these issues. <laughs> <laughs> and yet in 2023, I, I don't know. Yeah, we'll well, see yeah. reflecting on that. Yeah, people talk about the pendulum swinging, but nobody told us it was going to be a wrecking ball. 
which, you know, seriously, nobody could have imagined it back then. And things were defined for us back then in a way that we could actually figure out what to do to right the wrongs. And now I think the wrongs are so massive that just, you know, looking at them is confusing or where do I start? And, um, you know, I... It isn't what it was. It's very different. There are a million places to start. And I drew up a list of, I mean, a kid in the audience said, what can I do? Well, Jesus, what a question. Um, There are, I think you have, I think a kid or anybody has to follow their instincts in their heart and find what it is they can do, what they can engage in, whether it's you know, working as a volunteer or eventually taking the serious risk that's involved in making social change, even even introducing them to the idea that at some point we have to take a risk or nothing will change. What those risks are right now um, are, are big. And I think, you know, just recognizing that fact and being willing to take some time to figure out what you want to do for the betterment of this planet and for the people upon it. That is really shrewd. I had not thought about it in terms of of risk level and risk assessment, which must be, and we know that so much of this current new generation really does see things uh, with a progressive light, but then that that challenge of risk is is something else indeed. I think especially with the internet, because there are a lot of things you can do on the internet, but that risk taking, I don't know, somehow, like the Justins, the Justins in the Tennessee Three, that was a serious risk. And they go on taking it, but the first one was just not taking what, not, not shutting their mouths, just keep on uh, attacking um, instead of being squashed. Um, so, you know, they continue, though so their careers are in jeopardy and their lives are in jeopardy, but they keep doing what they're doing in a steadfast and true way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, as you uh, just to switch gears for a moment, as you may know, um, I do a lot of work on the Beatles, and this uh, part of this is our podcast for everything Fab Four. And um, <laughs> of course, your career uh, predates uh, those four guys, but um, but I know you've covered their work many times. Do you do you recall the Sullivan Show being on television and all of that business? I recall meeting those boys. <laughs> which was an experience in itself. And just one little, this can describe a lot of their first visit because I was there on their first visit and they were staying in a fancy hotel in Denver. And their biggest joy and thrill and excitement was that there was a Coca-Cola machine you didn't have to put any money in. (laughs) (laughs) 
don't even have to put any money in. Get as many Coca-Colas as you like. <laughs> so that was their dream scenario. <laughs> no, they never even dreamed it up. It was just, it was so exciting to have. <laughs> how did they... How did they open up music? You did certainly by by providing voice and different ways of thinking about the folk movement. What what did they do? Well, I think they, like Dylan, introduced another angle to it. I mean, Dylan's was writing um, songs that for us were, you know, revolutionary and revelatory. And then the Beatles and the Stones were an entrance into the next phase, which was their rock. Um, I think anyway, and I, I will tell you that night that we met and went and hung out in either their place or mine, and they were all about Bob. You know, they they wanted <laughs> to that connection with the writing and, and you know and the mystique and all of that, um, and they were very appreciative of me, but they were really a step beyond me and beyond the urban folk. They were heading in a in a, a broader direction. And luckily for us, they took on like wildfire, and they were all talented boys. One of the the aspects I love so much about, you know, studying you and, and certainly the documentary is the way in which you make it your business to be there. And I tell <laughs> my this no, I tell my students this all the time that the most important thing you can do is show up well, even yeah. when you don't want to, you know, and to make you to be present, you yeah. know, even when you're having a bad day or, you know, it's whatever the issue is being present is so powerful. And part of that allowed you to be at the cusp of so much, so many important events, et cetera, that happened during our time. And to be invited, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> that, it, you know, that, that got to be, you know, I, for instance, when I went to Northern Ireland during the, you know, the peace people, the peace women were trying to, you know, join the two halves of that country. And I wanted to go, but I needed somebody to invite me. So I, you know, I called and I said, will you invite me? And went <laughs> that way. But yeah, I was welcome with open arms you know, when I did my work. Uh Another aspect of of the film um, that I think will have lots of meaning, particularly for younger viewers, and I think about that lens being a university professor, is um, the issue of your voice. Um, it's your story, at least through the lens of this documentary, begins almost immediately with you working with a vocal coach. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, it's it's a powerful moment. You know, you're not just resting on your laurels. You're working on um, that muscle, that that skill set. I was working with that difficult muscle, and happily, the dog stole the show. <laughs> that dog can sing. That dog can sing. <laughs> sounds like, <laughs> <isn't> it? <laughs> it sounds like a Jackson Brown song. Yeah, but <laughs> but that dog really um, stepped up. <laughs> yeah, she stepped up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it tackles the hardest part of it right off the bat which was, you know, having to give up what I had hung on to in my voice, which begins deteriorating. And by the time we did the documentary, it was well into, you know, a point where I didn't know whether I want to continue because it was too hard to keep up that work. Uh, clearly, you were fulfilled by that, that, that last tour, right? Yeah, but the last tour, it was as difficult as it could get. And I was happy with the tour. 
I mean, I was happy. I had done um, what I did at that point and figured out which notes worked and which ones didn't and knew what I wanted to say and, and felt um, it, it's somewhat of the ease I'd had vocally from earlier years, but mostly I would say just the ease and pleasure of being on the stage. And it seems like that's that always is a salve for you, right? That that kind of expression to know that it's there for you, even even during the darker times. Yeah, um, and that was beginning to fade because it was difficult to sing. But certainly for the first <laughs> 30 years or 40 years, I knew I could bank on that. You know, that voice was there um, to deliver. Maintenance and delivery is what I call it because it, it was God-given. I didn't invent it. I just tried to use it well. Well, one thing you've you've used so well, and and I, I hold it up as a light for our students is, uh, and this documentary really makes it uh, indubitably clear, and that is being happy and being able to enjoy others. Right? You know, um, so often uh, folks who achieve a certain kind of fame become about themselves, and I love the moments that the documentary shows. Uh, shows in which you're dancing to someone else's music or yeah. just looking on admiringly and very sincerely when someone else is singing. I mean, being happy for other people, our world could be a lot better if folks would do that. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. And and the dancing is my sustenance. I mean, I, I dance at some point each day. I was told by a by a medium <laughs> <laughs> looking at my chart and he said yes well i see you are here to um the sing and to be politically active and to draw and to paint but you were really here to dance well i like that yeah, me too. yeah. <laughs> that that's lovely um of course another aspect that um that the documentary demonstrates so powerfully is the value of lived experience being other places that were outside your comfort zone with your family and mm -hmm. um and perhaps earlier than many of your generation having a sense of what otherness is and and what other people's lives look like outside of our own mm -hmm. you know i for all whatever my difficulties are with the family i remember my father we were coming back from the Middle East uh, where we spent eight months and we were looking for a hotel room in England. And we were about, my father was about to go up to the desk and ask, and an East Indian came in with a turban on and he went and asked for a room and they said they didn't have any. And we knew that they did. And mm. my father went and said something to uh, the service at the desk and he said, we can't stay here. No. And we picked our little family up and went somewhere else because he, he couldn't, he, he, he didn't want to stay somewhere that was going to reject, um, you know, an East Indian. So, and then that's another kind of risk, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? was, yeah. But it was where we learned that, where we learned about other people. And, you know, and we learned about other people through our own experiences of me being a Mexican in Southern California and there was, you know, enough prejudice there that also molded my life as a, 
a marginal person in a lot of places. I mean, we moved a lot, so it's a new school. But in that particular, that's where I spent the, the most number of years in school, and no formative years, um, sixth grade, seventh, eighth, ninth, yeah, four years, and discovering what it was like to, to, to really be marginal with a new bunch of people. On multiple times, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It must yeah. have seemed like a process after the after a while for you. Well, you know, when you're in it, when you're in it, you're just in it. I mean, when I didn't analyze anything or step back and look at it, I was just trying to deal with each day uh, what I was going to do with myself and who I would hang out with. Um, until I started, I, I call it my court jester period because I didn't have friends, but I could go at lunchtime with my ukulele and imitate Elvis Presley and <laughs> you know and sing little folk songs. And I began to develop, you know, at least some people who were interested in me and what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and most people couldn't do that. <laughs> no, they couldn't do that at all. So there are big question marks over their heads and. Um, Figure out what to do with me. Yeah. Um, I speaking of going back to events that that you were present at. There you there you are in in so many pictures on the Beatles' last day as performing musicians in front of a paying audience at Candlestick Park. You remember that day? Uh, I was there, and I remember. Was it Epstein still their manager? Oh yes. There was a brief moment after a song when people weren't screaming. And he said, oops, this is our last tour. <laughs> Didn't want, you know, that one moment was enough for him to know that they, you know, that initial wild manic behavior might be dwindling and you couldn't afford to have them touring <laughs> with that. Well, when the screaming stops, I guess. <laughs> exactly. When the screaming stops. In your fondest hopes, you know, what do you what do you long for for people to take away from from the documentary? Because of course, film is such a um, you know a, a mediated kind of experience, and folks, we think about ourselves as we watch other people making observations and reflecting about themselves. Uh, have you thought about you know what those takeaways might be? Well, we've already discovered some of them. Um, which wasn't the point of the film, but that has emboldened some people to talk about their own issues, their own traumas, which they hadn't wanted to deal with for sometimes a lifetime. So that's been, I mean, aside from the fact that the film is really, really well received um, and people get joy and pleasure and heartbreak and all that from it, uh, that some people have approached me saying, I, I have been unable to talk about my own personal issues until now. So, well, that level of empowerment must be gratifying. It's very gratifying. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high 
Octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. Thank you.